Hello and welcome to our Maritime Impact podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Nyhus, Director Environment for Maritime at DNB. Efforts to decarbonize the shipping industry continue apace. In this third series, we will continue to explore how the decisions taken by the IMO and other regional authorities aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions will impact the maritime sector. We now want to take a closer look at the particular challenges facing certain vessel segments in their attempts to decarbonize efficiently. To do this, I have invited some of DNV's segment directors who are working with customers on the specific maritime challenges onto the podcast to explore these topics. What are the latest regulations affecting gas carriers and what actions should businesses take to ensure they stay compliant and successful? To find out, our business director for gas carriers, Martin Cartwright, is joining me to discuss the segment. We hope you enjoy the episode and now on to the show. Martin, many thanks for joining me today. As, as we know, the gas carrier segment, it covers a broad spectrum of energy carriage types. Uh, where do you see them lying on the subject of uh, decarbonization? Well, firstly, Eric, thank you for having me. And fortunately, we have the opportunity to talk about what is quite an exciting segment at the moment. To answer your question, um, as you quite rightly mentioned, first of all, gas carriers covers quite a number of vessel types. You know, this includes LNG, LPG, ammonia, you have, of course, your multi-gas carriers, and CO2 is one of the new players in the market. What aligns them all, of course, is that they tend to be the test bed for alternative fuels and have a huge impact on the future fuel mix for the maritime industry. LNG as fuel and LNG carriers, LPG as fuel and LPG carriers, we've seen conversions over the last couple of years. Ammonia on ammonia carriers in the future, which is also very exciting and, and a natural progression. And as I said, we have then CO2 carriers, which are, of course, part of the bigger and broader decarbonisation uh, picture, uh, beyond vessels themselves, even. If we take a step back, um, now with a slightly more holistic view on the segment in general, I think it's fair to say that we are fortunate that the gas segment specifically is no stranger to challenging technological advancements. Therefore, it's quite impressive to see the swift changes that have been that are being made to tackle the decarbonisation challenge. You can see this in the order books already, in fact. What is this steered by? Well, of course, this is no different from any other uh, vessel type. And I'm sure my colleagues will say the exact same as me. EXI and CI continue to be the main topics of conversation for all ship owners, operators and charters. The gas care segment in itself is a very complex one. Well, then you have variable cargo densities, you have consumption for cargo cooling uh, and reliquification. You also have boil off gas, um, and these are all the foundation of the complexities within the segment. And when you talk about EXI and CII, well, th there's no doubt that this is a, as I say, a complex segment as well as being a high tech segment. Um, uh, but I guess a lot of us we talk about this fundamentally being split into gas carriers and uh, LNG carriers, and, and we'll get further into this. But maybe first you can start off by explaining the difference in simple terms between gas carriers and LNG carriers to our listeners, and then we'll dive into the uh, deeper specifics. Well, ultimately, it comes down to the cargo that's being uh, being carried and obviously the densities therein. And then you have what, what happened in the regulations with regards to 
the deviation between gas carriers and LNG carriers some years back. But if we want to come back to, you know, what are the complexities and, and why these are split? Well, to begin with, LNG ship owners, I mean, let's get down to the specifics of EXICI, shall we? When it comes to LNG ship owners, we've, they've had to remain extremely patient uh, when it comes to their decision making due to this uh, boil off gas issue, uh, which will be handled within, or rather how it will be handled in the EXL calculation. If we're going to simplify it, ultimately the world LNG fleet is split between steam turbine, modern dual fuel engines that are two stroke gas injection, and then you have the, the diesel uh, and tri-fuel vessels, which all have to handle this very differently. Power limitations will need to be considered for the steam turbine vessels. That's without a doubt. But that, of course, will result, you know, EXI compliance is still possible. Of course, these ships will lose some speed, but the powering will still be economically reasonable. But no matter how you put it, this is the beginning of the long phase out of these kind of vessels over a long period of time. For now, however, we need vessels to help the energy transition and support the goal to, to gas transition. Uh, and with that, you need the entire fleet that's on the water for the time being. Other propulsion types shouldn't be too troubled by the requirements. Um, again, we're talking specifically about EXI to start with. So that first hurdle is, is quite easily tackled, I should maybe say. Most owners are already working on the status of their fleet and mapping out the actions they need to take to ensure compliance. But there will certainly be some vessels that leave the market in the coming years, that's without a doubt. The longer horizon, though, of course, is what we need to perhaps focus on. CII ratings are going to be influenced charters, their selection, and ultimately determine the progression of the fleet and what's ordered and what we're going to use over the coming years. Because LNG is, of course, a growing market and it's something that we're going to need for, for many years to come. Um, and we see a huge amount of growth coming towards us. I, th I think that's a very important point you're making there, Martin, that we all have to be cognizant that even if the EEXI is kind of the immediate uh, headache, if you will, that needs to be dealt with, it is a one-off regulation. And in essence, once we're done with 2023, we are for all intents and purposes done with that one, of course, with some exceptions, but but still. But uh, the CII, that, that's going to be with us for the for the long haul, because that is a recurring annual operational operational effect. Uh, efficiency uh, indicator calculation. So once we get into the CII, uh, how do you see that progressing uh, as, we head as we head into the future, essentially? Because we are going to be seeing tighter and tighter requirements for each and every year as we head, uh, head out. Yeah, I mean, it's a challenging subject, right? Uh, certainly, to begin with, the, the LNG fleet, let's start with LNG, or rather we can say gas carriers too, in fact. To begin with, they sit in a very good position, and, and I'm referring to kind of the more modern side of the fleet. But for the broader spectrum, they're need to, going to really concentrate on a potential decarbonisation stairway. We've talked about this before and within our energy transition outlooks in the past. This is something that we're kind of supporting owners with uh, in all segments, to be frank. But in the gas segment, you know, there's, there's, there's a, so many routes that can potentially be taken. As, I've, as we've already touched upon, they've been pioneering a lot of these alternative fuels to, to simplify it for quite some time. We've been operating on LNG for quite some time. We've now had L LPG vessels uh, as fuel, I should say. 
And so now mapping out what you're going to do in the future is the most important. If you're looking at vessels that are sailing today, you know, we need to look at what you're going to do in the next five, 10, 15 years, when you're going to take action at a dry dock if needed. No matter how you put it, every single vessel and the entire fleet within the gas segment that falls within this, uh, the requirement to, to, to categorize in the CII ratings will need to do something within the next 15 years. Even new buildings that are built today, extremely modern, very efficient vessels will be, have a great rating when they come out, will need to do something and perhaps by the, the third dry dock possibly. So mapping that out and what you need to do is very important. The positives as well is we're far better at looking at operational profiles than ever before. Owners have been trying to find ways to make their vessels more efficient since day one. So understanding how vessels operate, moving them around is, in terms of chartered vessels and moving them around and where they're operating is also going to be important in, to ensure uh, CI compliance and be more efficient. Collaboration across all parts of the value chain is important. You know, energy majors along with owners, yards, classification societies like ourselves is important and actually understanding the technologies that are available today and the, when other technologies will be mature enough uh, in the future. You know, we ourselves have looked at very different stairways uh, or pathways, wherever you want to put it, with, you know, major players in the, in the, in the segment. We've been working along with Total Energies and other partners looking at different pathways. May that be wind-assisted propulsion, and installing that during new building, looking at the future of potential drop-in fuels, which are you know bio-LNG, synthetic LNG, and adding them to the fuel mix. We're even looking at carbon capture systems on board and when would be a good time to install that on an already operational vessel. And then you need to also start thinking about potential for carbon taxes and, and the infrastructure in place to actually handle these matters. So looking at that whole pathway is what's going to help us ensure that we keep below that trajectory line for CII and ensure that ratings are kept at a very optimal level and ensure that vessels in operation are attractive towards uh, charters and are doing the right thing within the market. You're really emphasizing technologies here. Um, uh, and of course, you are representing, uh, in, in a sense, a shipping segment that is pretty advanced uh, technologically. You, you said this previously. I mean, the, that the gas segment is no stranger to challenging technological advancements, etc., etc. And you also mentioned that this is something that we can see in the order books already, that we actually are seeing a step change in what kind of technologies are being picked up uh, for, for the new builds. Can, can you elaborate a little bit further on that? What, what are we seeing happening in the market on the, here? Yeah, it's a valid question. And it's one of the most exciting parts of, of the segment, I guess. You know, in order books themselves, you know, it's all about what engines are being ordered, what containment systems are being ordered, and what additional technology is being ordered. You know, the ordered book already is predominantly two-stroke gas injection engines, as most will already know. This is the transition that's happened over the last few years, moving on from, from other propulsion types. Um, and they'll have no problem complying with EXI and CEI. You know, when you consider the fleet and the order book together, Two-stroke direct drive vessels make up close to 40% of the fleet. And that's a big shift just in the last few years. You know, before before including the order book, you were maybe looking at about 40% of steam turbine vessels were made up the LNG fleet. That is swiftly going to turn into 50% of these two-stroke gas injection vessels over the next coming years. So that in itself is, is exciting and shows, a, shows progression. You also see the ramp up of 
the installation of air lubrication systems. You see that in many orders today. There's many orders in the order book. You've even seen your first, I shouldn't say conversions, but installation of, of ALS on current sailing vessels, which in itself is very exciting. And they're seeing savings that then influence your CII rating. Then there's looking at the finer details of, of new build specifications. The technologies I've already mentioned, you generally see them as part of specifications these days from day one when tenders are being negotiated. And that sets a good precedent. Uh, and ultimately, what that means is these modern vessel types have become the new baseline within the segment and is, uh, is a better vessel to then build on ultimately with regards to efficiency. There is a lot going on in the technological space here, obviously, and you sound uh, quite optimistic, I would say, when it comes to the, the future of the te technologies that are going to help us remain below the, the CII trajectory or essentially whatever other regulations actually pop up in this space. But I, I want to kind of take a step backwards, if you will, and, and kind of look at the, the, the political picture here a little bit. Um, because when we uh, start looking at, say, the EU, for instance, take it, it's a highly relevant example here. We do know that natural gas, of course, is crucial to the energy system of the EU, and in that sense underpins their whole the economic activities of the EU. But in the same conversations we're having there, we are seeing that LNG for ships is actually coming under a lot of pressure politically, because it obviously is a fossil fuel. Uh, then we have the incoming EU regulations, uh, such as the ETS and the fuel EU maritime, where the ETS will well, essentially drive up the costs of emitting, whereas uh, the fuel EU maritime will force uptake of lower carbon fuels, uh, starting maybe already in 2025. Now, the details are still under negotiations for all of these, but, but how do you think about this uh, uh, pressure being brought to bear on natural gas and uh, LNG specifically in an European context? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting subject. Uh, I mean, what we're looking at here is not just natural gas as, a, as, a, as an energy product, but rather as a fuel as well, right? I mean, if we go to the first part, natural gas, there's a huge requirement for it. It's only going to grow and it'll be peaking, you know, late into the late 30s. You only need to reference the likes of our own energy transition outlook. You know, Shell has their recent outlook and you have... Uh, with Mackenzie's outlook as well to reference for that. But when it comes to the fuel itself, I mean, this is something we're watching very closely. Um, and it's, there's no doubt that this is going to have a huge impact on how this is treated and, and the viewpoint on it. When you look at the proposal and, and as it stands today, it does appear that LNG in dual fuel vessels, at least, will remain viable well past the mid-2030s. Then we note that when it comes to land-based natural gas, the EU and the taxonomy have put in place blending mandates for biogas that will kick in in the 2030s. And we would, we would then expect these gas blends to also become available to ships, essentially as drop-in fuels, as I mentioned earlier. This is something that ships are going to have to consider. Um, they'll still need to do some work on board the vessel to separate the cargo from fuel. So you'll still perhaps need to install tanks on board to then blend in the fuel on board, potentially. Um, but there's still a lot of uncertainties, of course. Then there's from the geopolitical standpoint, the change in energy systems and knock-on effects for shipping, which is why we keep advocating for fuel flexibility. And it's also why this is looked at as a strong candidate for how to move forward as an industry. F focus on your flexibility and the possibilities of what to do um, across technologies and fuels. 
We see the EU policies as a driving transition, uh, one that also includes greener LNG. So we think there's a long-term future for LNG, uh, for LNG as a fuel, regardless. Um, as you'll have heard a hundred times over, we've talked about LNG being a transition fuel. I'll say the statement that you've heard a number of times as times before it's also a fuel that's in transition itself right yeah it'll be forever changing yeah i i think we uh, we're very much in agreement uh, that uh, yes lng is certainly a fossil fuel uh, on the other other hand we cannot fall into this uh, hole of uh, the perfect becoming the enemy of the good as we actually are transitioning we're not doing a step change from fossil to non-fossil in one uh, in one huge leap here so we need to look at the the bridging technologies if you will so when when you think about all this um natural about natural gas and lng uh, fleet in the, in a broader context uh, anything else you'd like to to, to point out how stuff happening uh, in the, in the rest of the world uh, things like that well there's plenty happening right it's it's always top of the top of the conversation within this segment i mean look natural gas plays a significant role in in progressing towards net zero uh, emissions if you ask me uh, and the ambitions that we have globally and specifically within shipping. You know, the demand for LNG is only going to rise. And we need to remember that to move towards our emission goals globally, we still, in some parts of the world, need to transition from coal. Uh, and LNG provides that next step um, for some parts of the world. And that will reduce our emissions substantially globally. Therefore, there's going to be more LNG ships required to move that LNG to those areas needing it. Um, and so we can't neglect that. And, and, and that's why there's going to be more demand in, in the Asian region. As I already said as well, you can reference our ETO, Wood Mackenzie's ETO or Shell's recent outlook, and it will show you kind of the progression of LNG, the demand for it, and where we're going to lie in terms of demand um, and what we have available. This is in shipping and also the amount we can produce with regards to LNG. And there's going to be a gap there. So there is a need for, for vessels and more production, um, no matter how you put it. Also, we need to consider the flexibility of LNG. When there's no wind, when there's no sun, LNG is still a good way to ensure energy security. So again, there, there's not going to be too much of a transition, but rather a ramp up of LNG over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and that will then, as I've already said a number of times, is going to need more ships. So the fleet is only going to grow. And out of all segments, it's probably going to grow at a slightly larger rate. And this year, as I said, you can see from the heightened order books from last year, this year, they've been the highest they've been for many years. Well, thank you for that, Martin. It's been great uh, picking your brain and trying to get a bit more insight into what's going on in the segment. So I'm really grateful that you came on. Uh, it's been great listening to you and uh, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. So what are the key points that maritime businesses should take away from today's discussion? As Martin has alluded to, the gas carrier segment is certainly one to watch. The vessel types that make up this segment tend to be the early adopters of alternative fuels and are likely to point us in the direction of future fuels for the maritime industry. It is a segment that has already faced considerable challenges in terms of environmental regulation, so it's no surprise that significant changes have already been made. As with other segments, EEXI and CII are hot topics of conversation, and what we are seeing among gas carriers is a real effort to work out the compliance status of their fleet. 
There are questions surrounding different vessel types, but the fact is that all of them will be required to support the energy transition and establishing what work you need to do as soon as possible is the best way to do that. The CII in particular is said to be a defining piece of regulation in the journey to decarbonization. Collaboration at all levels of the value chain is going to have to be a hallmark of the transition. And for maritime businesses, it's time to start thinking about what this means for you. In essence, operational strategies, technology choices, and fuel choices are all going to be shaped by the coming transition. Incoming EU regulations are also on the horizon, and as Martin described, there is much detail to be worked out here, with the added political element making the impact of ETS and the fuel EU maritime even more unclear. In the face of this uncertainty, fuel flexibility is key and will help fleets navigate their regulations regardless of how they turn out. One positive we heard from Martin is that he sees greener LNG as a crucial part of the transition to decarbonization, meaning there is a long-term future for these kinds of vessels. Thank you for joining us for this episode. It's been an interesting conversation and a pleasure to discuss decarbonization of the gas carrier segment with Martin. Martin has highlighted some of the key challenges gas carriers are facing and has also given us a sense of optimism over what can be achieved if we all pull together. You've been listening to the Maritime Impact podcast from DND with me, Eric Nyhus. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to give us a rating or a review. Thank you very much for listening.